Hi, I'm Bob. I'm an alcoholic. Sober since December 10th, 1967. Hi, I'm Ken, and I'm an alcoholic, and I'm sober since July 5th of 1970. Uh, Ken and I really have not, we don't have a formal plan. We're here to talk about spirituality and how it operates in our lives and in our programs. Those who know what they're talking about don't talk about it, and those who don't know talk about it. I think it's the, uh, so we're, we're hope, hopefully in the process of sharing that, uh, uh, we'll all create something that will have meaning for us. Uh, I, I want to open it with a, a little story that is out of a book called The Power of Now, and the man's opening the story, and it says, A beggar had been sitting on the side of the road for over 30 years. One day a stranger walked by. Spare some change, mumbled the beggar. The stranger, holding out his old baseball cap, and the stranger said, I have nothing to give you. And then he said, What's that box you're sitting on? Nothing, replied the beggar, just an old box I've been sitting here for the last, for as long as I can remember. The beggar said, ever look inside? The beggar said, no. What's the point? There's nothing in there. The man said, have a look inside. So the beggar looked and managed to pry open the lid with some difficulty, and to his astonishment and disbelief and elation, he saw that the box was filled with gold. Most of us are in the process of looking outside of ourselves for a treasure and for a peace that is findable, I believe, only inside of ourselves. Uh, the subtitle for this workshop might also be, If I've had a spiritual awakening, why do I still have trouble? Uh, <laughs> which, so we're here to talk about trouble. Uh, what I thought, and I don't know, most of you know me rather well, uh, I'm going to take uh, about ten minutes and try to give you a capsule of my life, emphasizing a little bit of uh, maybe trying to, give a small insight as to what spirituality is playing a role. Then I'm going to ask Ken if he'd consider doing something similar. So at least you can get some sort of, for those of you who don't know us, have some sort of sense. I started drinking when I was 14 years old. I lived in St. Paul, Minnesota all my life. I went to a military, a Catholic military academy. We drank in high school like most people drink in college. Drank my brains out, went to the University of Notre Dame, drank my way out of Notre Dame in the middle of my senior year. Uh, loved alcohol, loved what it did, made the noise go away. It gave me a sense of peace and well-being that nothing else that I have run into did. I knew I was in trouble with it. I knew it caused me difficulty, but by and large, I had found an answer. And as someone explained their drinking story, you know, the, the, there's a period where drinking is your answer, and then it's an answer and a problem, and then later it's just a problem. And that's kind of the story of most of our alcoholism. Uh, I got released from Notre Dame, got a medical release for alcoholism so I didn't have to go to Vietnam, or I, I had to, got released from the service. Came home, finished school at St. Thomas College. Uh, spent the last year of my drinking living, oh, not on Skid Row, but I'm working at a liquor store, worked as a waiter, drinking a quart a day. Life's not very good. Uh, no one knows where I am. I'm kind of isolated and ashamed of how I'm living my life. Uh, no, I've got a big problem, but the problem seems symptomatic. You know, it seems like I'm using it as a solution. I've tried sobriety. Sobriety, I had two fairly long periods of sobriety. That sure as heck didn't seem to me to be a solution. 
and uh, got beat up at a party, lost the job, bankrupt, went home, asked my father if I could move back in the house for a while. He allowed, I got back together with Linda about that time, with my lovely wife. And uh, I really tried to get my life together at that time. Uh, I wanted my life to work very badly. Got a job as a man, an executive trainee with a manufacturing concern here in town. Bought my first car, got engaged. Looked to me like I was finally putting the structure together that was going to take me where I wanted to go, except I couldn't shut my drinking down. And finally, uh, about three months after that, or for about three or four months after that, I got uh, I got horribly drunk, missed a bunch of work, scared to death, and woke up one morning after about a most of, a blackout most of the day before. I called AA, and two men came out and talked to me, and my life changed. And that was in August of 1967. I drank twice briefly after that, but uh, I fell in love with it. I was I, I was given the gift to like Alcoholics Anonymous. Staying in Alcoholics Anonymous has not been difficult for me. Doing the work has been difficult, but loving AA and and loving the people in AA has not been difficult for me. Uh, the most profound thing, I think, for me when I came in AA was, was finding out that alcoholism was a disease, but it was also a disease that affected me as a total person, and it was physical, but also mental and spiritual. And that the physical part, my sponsor told me, we could all argue about that, was a small, he thought a small part of it, maybe only 10%. He thought once, you know, he thought the mental and spiritual part was a far more important aspect. I remember how surprised I was that at the meeting and after the meeting, the discussion that most of the men have with my sponsor and other sponsors of considerable sobriety was were problems in life. So pretty soon I got the idea that we were not just there to learn not how not to drink. We were there and they were discussing sex problems, money issues, work problems, amends. These men were discussing about how to get their lives together and what to do. And it was, you know, uh, so I started that process of putting the steps in action in my life. And I think I was pretty diligent about trying to do that, and I made some very significant progress during the first couple of years. Interrupt. <laughs> Take a break for a minute. The tape at, at a later time. We just had a little problem with the sound system, and we hopefully have addressed it. Can the people who were having difficulty hearing before hear better back there? No. Are we going to, uh, maybe I'm too close. If anyone cannot hear, move your head forward. Ah, <laughs> There's about 20 chairs that are down here in front, if that would assist anybody. All right, can we quiet down? I'm going to go for it again, and we'll give it a run. So I came into Alcoholics. Oh, we're going to move. Okay, we're going to hang on. Okay. Not working. My God, no. Uh, can you hear me now? So I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, like most of us did, simply out of pain and not knowing what else to do. Uh, 
when I entered AA, I had this profound excitement that we were a group of people who had similarities. You know, we were all huddled together. We were a, a small but unique group of people who had this set of problems. AA had a solution. It wasn't just physical. I tried physical solutions. It was mental and spiritual. I progressed the first few years to make pretty significant progress. I went through the steps. I'm sober. I'm delighted with my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. And then kind of a funny thing happened to me. I kind of hit... I kind of hit a plateau, and through my third and fourth and fifth year of sobriety, I started, what was happening to me is I was identifying problems, defects of character, things that I had to deal with, but I wasn't getting resolutions and they weren't changing. I had problems of unmanageability in my areas of my sex life, my business, finance, uh, parenting, marriage, you know, life all over. And I had issues, I had a lot of issues around work and money and spending money. I spent too much money. And uh, I wasn't able to resolve these issues, and I really tried to bust my britches to do so, and, and found myself getting uh, more upset with myself and feeling worse about my sobriety as time went on in my early middle sobriety. And finally, about six or seven years through, six or seven years sober, I was in serious trouble. I was in serious circumstantial trouble. I was unhappy. I was thinking about suicide. I've been going to four or five meetings a week, but I'm I'm in deep trouble. I'm feeling like AA is just something that I've, you know, one more thing that I failed at, had a hell of a good start. But here I am with a level of unmanageability almost equal to what I had in my early sobriety. And uh, that experience for me turned out to be an opportunity for a second surrender. And I got into the steps at a depth that I had not taken. And I got into the steps, I think, with a sense of powerlessness and having God do something for me uh, that I didn't understand. Six and seven were pivotal. The six and seven step were pivotal in that experience. And from that experience, and then subsequently going on through my 34th year of sobriety, I think that the spiritual walk or the walk of sobriety, or the, if you're going to grow, is, is a, a period of ups and downs. But there are, I think life is a school. I think the subject is love. I think that in the process of living life, the universe and God will present me and you with the issues that are, don't work very well. And it will press them up against our nose and we will have the opportunity to resolve them. Most of them are illusions. They aren't very difficult, but we're in love with them and there are illusions. And we don't give them up very easily. And I think the spiritual walk is a process of, of trying to stay open. I believe, especially the last number of years, I've come to, to give great import to the world word spiritual awakening. I think what, is, what has happened to me and to many of us over a period of time is we're more awake. We're simply more awake. And in the process of being more awake, we don't do some of the things we used to do when we were asleep. An awful lot of the things I did, I did in my sleep. An awful lot of the people I hurt, an awful lot of the things that I did, I wasn't awake to them. And now over a period of time, by taking the steps, by working with a sponsor, by going to meetings and by doing some spiritual work, uh, I'm more open. And as a result of being more open, I see things earlier than I used to, and I have an opportunity not to just be a machine or a reactor. And so that's kind of where I am. I'm going to turn it over to Ken, let Ken tell you a little bit about himself, and then we'll stumble on someplace else. Hi, I'm Ken. I'm an alcoholic. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Okay. Uh, I'm the youngest of uh, seven, a typical Irish Catholic family, and my family were divided into two groups. Either you're in AA or you need it. 
in other words. Uh, there was, uh, I'm the only one who's made it, so in the process I've lost brothers and sisters behind this thing. Um, you know, I hear, I go to meetings and it's pretty common now to hear, which is nothing wrong with it, people sharing about taking a drink of alcohol and it's going down and doing all these wonderful things. Well, we came into the system the old Irish way. We just started when we were young and got used to it. You know, and uh, the, the deal was, was in the 50s, 40s, and 50s, you could drink in New York at the legal drinking age was 18. My brother was a bartender. I went into a bar when I was 13 or 14. I was about 5'11". Sat there, and as long as I shot darts and played cards and mind my own business, I could drink. So I didn't have that experience of drink doing that big number on me right away. Uh, it did a number on me over the course of time. As I stayed in the game, as our literature says, we, we drink to a point where we just can't drink anymore. You know, we cross over a line and then we can't go back. And that's the kind of alcoholic I was. I was of the educational variety. I just kind of, you know, bumbled and bumbled along. And uh, went through all the things that you go through. Grew up in the city, and at that time, uh, my dad had passed away. My mom was raising seven kids. I was the youngest of those kids, and I made money as a as a runner. I ran books for a while. And the thing was, is I became very good with numbers. And uh, I was failing math in school, but making more than the teacher who was teaching me. So, that's, so I had a lot of those illusions. You know, I spent a good part of my life trying to escape from a reality I was never in. And uh, much of what I did would be like housekeeping in a dream. Kept you busy, but it wasn't real. And I did drive-bys to reality once in a while, but it just didn't look like those folks were having much fun. And so uh, basically I created my own world, and I lived in that world. And I thought it was real. You know, it to me had become real. And uh, when I finally got around to making it to Alcoholics Anonymous in seventy. It was a case of I was living with my mom in a senior citizen place. I had been there long enough to start to use the walker. <laughs> and uh, my wife and kids had moved away from me for their own sanity. And uh, I was in the process of going to jail because I had a habit of finding things before people officially lost them. <laughs> and uh, the end result of that was I was in total turmoil. And when I got sober, to show you where I was at, I was sober about six months. I came in in July of 70. Bill Wilson died. And they broke his anonymity in all of the New York papers. I mean, that had already been, uh, I guess, spoken to by the folks in the powers of BMAA. And so suddenly his anonymity was broken, and the headline in the paper said, Co-founder of AA died. And I called my sponsor and I said, wow, I said, you know, this thing looks like it might work and now the owner died. <laughs> and I thought it was they were going to cancel all the meetings. Uh, you know, that's where I was at. So he said, keep going to the meetings. The rumor is they're going to try to keep it open for a while. <laughs> so it gives you some idea of the, uh, the, the mindset I had when I got here. And... Uh, like Bob has said, when I came in, I got off to a really good start in AA. Being alone at that time was the best thing that could have happened to me. But then when I got back with my family after 18 months, the, the reality of being a father and, and a husband and all of those things came right back to the fore. And I had to start dealing with stuff that I had very carefully not dealt with. 
and uh, and found myself like in a free fall. And the end result of that free fall, these folks can't hear back here. How is this? Is that any better for you? This is my mic. I don't want them to use my mic. You just spilled your water there. Uh, you okay? Your Honor, at this time, we'd like to enter a... <laughs> At this time, we'd like to enter a plea of not guilty <laughs> by reasons of insanity. Uh, but the uh, the deal was is that I was in a free fall and uh, a great deal was going on in my life and I didn't have anything to hang on to. You know, I I'm, my mind works a little bit off center most of the time. And when I look at that word spiritual, and this is about a spiritual awakening, when I look at that word spiritual... Inside the word spiritual is the word ritual, R-I-T-U-A-L. And my deal was I had no ritual in my life. I, I just did as I pleased. And AA began to put me in a scenario where if I was going to stay sober and have any chance at happiness, I was going to have to get into the ritual. And the ritual here is pretty simple, working with others, turning your will and your life over to God as you understand God in the best way you can, and then getting on with life. And uh, I had spent a good bit of my life scratching stuff that never itched and uh, and getting involved in things I had absolutely no control over, thinking that I was exerting some control. You know, the best story I could tell about my drinking would be the story of the lion in the jungle, where the lion walks up to the panther and he said, who's the king of the jungle? And the panther says, you missed the lion. And he says, don't you forget it. And then he goes over to the giraffe and he says, who's the king of the jungle? And the giraffe says, you missed the lion. He says, don't you forget it. And he does this to several animals until finally he gets to the elephant. And he said, who's the king of the jungle? And the elephant picks the lion up by the tail, swings him over his head three or four times, and tosses him about 50 yards through the air. And he hits a tree with his head and he slides down. And as he gets up and he dusts himself off and the elephant's walking away, the lion yells out, hey! Just because you don't know the right answer, that's no way to behave, you know? And that's basically the way I was living my life at that time. So we decided that this microphone has a better delivery system. We're putting the microphones together. They're mating at the moment. We are going to have we're going to have little portable mics any moment. Rarely have we seen a microphone fail. It's put in this position. Uh, there's a set of tapes over here that I want to uh, recommend to people that Sandy Beach did on spirituality of AA. They are extraordinary. They're two state two tape set, and they're one of the best things that I've heard over a period of time. Our program is spiritual, period. Our book talks all the time about finding a power, you know, that, that our power, our problem is lack of power, that we need to find a power, we need to find it now. 
I think at different stages in our sobriety and different stages in our personal development, how we interact with that power and how we see that power is very different. For many of us early in sobriety, that power is the group. For many of us early in sobriety, that power is the steps and it's our sponsor and it's a collection of people that are in the, our village of sobriety. And uh, we don't have much of a relationship with a, a higher power, as we as we say. It. The higher power has skin on it and we want to be able to touch it. We want to be able to interact with it. And I think that that's how God acts anyway. I think God acts through people and that is the power of God showing up in a very practical way. I think that AA is the best blend of spirituality and practicality that I have ever seen. I think the spiritual, I don't know where you would go to see more profound things happen on a regular basis than our fellowship. I know they happen in many other places, but they certainly happen with the regularity here that you can see. You can just see if you're an active member of AA. So because they're spiritual, you also can't own them. Today in our, in our society of Alcoholics Anonymous, there probably is more formal teaching than there has ever been. You can go over to the table and see so-and-so in the 12 steps. You go to these AA conferences and they'll have 20 or 30 albums of people talking about the 12 steps. There are very aggressive groups that give you the impression they have been given a franchise on the program and they have a special interaction with it and they know how to practice the steps. If the steps were mechanical, that might be so. You know, so all you'd have to do, if the steps were mechanical, all you'd have to do is, you know, every time you had a difficulty, you'd say the third step prayer, click your heels, and you'd be back in Kansas. There just would, you know, there would not be any difficulty. But because they're, they're, in addition to being actions that we take, because they're spiritual in nature, there is a way of being in the process of taking the steps that I think you have to bring something to the process and be some way in that process in order to be able to get in order to have the internal transformation or change that is intended in those steps. And there is no formula. If you ask me, how do I have to be? I mean, everybody, every time a sponsor or a friend has a problem, they always, what they want to know before they leave the house is what do I do? You know, I mean, the, you know, they want something to do. Just give me something to do. What do I do? And the answer may be as much in how to be as it is in how to do, you know, but because we're a wonderful blend of practicality and spirituality, we have what Ken was referring to as rituals. We have a practice. There are certain practices that we do. You're more likely, if you're doing the right things, if you're talking to your sponsor, if you're reading the book, if you're working with others, if you're going to meetings and you're trying to practice these principles, you're far more likely to get lucky in that process. And like many of us, once you hit the right combination of pain and insight, uh, because I think pain is the touchstone of growth. I mean, there, there is, you know, there's having pleasurable times is, is, is just fine. And I, I, I sure prefer them and like them. But and most of my growth has come in trouble time uh, because that's when you start to run out of yourself. That's when you're a little bit more desperate and that's when you're looking. Your ego is a little bit more in the way uh, when you process. So in spirituality, uh I think there's a way of bringing ourselves into the steps. There, there needs to be some insight. There needs to be a kind of honesty. There needs to be a kind of humility, I believe, in order to have the result, you know, in order to have significant results in the process of taking the steps. Uh, I think as you get more sober, or you can't get more sober, as you stay sober, as you stay sober longer, uh, I think the steps deepen. I think our ability and insight and interaction with those steps deepen, and I think 
their application becomes in some ways a little bit more just of our breathing. It's a little bit, you know, that we, in addition to, there are times when we may be formally involved with the steps. We're in a step group, we're in a workshop, and we're we're going through. But the fact is, is that for those of us that have been interacting with those steps for a number of years, they just show up in your in the day daily living of our lives. Uh, but I think that in some ways, when you go through, you know, if we were going to go through the steps, we talk about we're admitted we were powerless and unmanageable. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves would restore us to standing. Made a decision to turn our will over to that power. All of us believe those things. But for many of us, the practical experience of them today is less powerful than it was at other times in our life. And I think it, it, the maintenance of the power of the steps is an important thing. I think a lot of us believe that we're powerless, but we don't act like we're powerless. There's, we're inconsistent. We're powerless, but we're in charge. We're powerless, but we use our, we rely on our minds to resolve everything that happens in our life. We're powerless, but we don't really get much of a good feeling that we have a partnership with God. You know, this is for money or sex. I better handle this one. You know, you get this. No, but the fact is, is that the the practical application of that and the relief and the and 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 the uh, that I find myself that, that that God often on a daily basis is not the most important thing in my life. I can say those words. I know what the answer. If you give me the test, I can pass the test. But there are lots of days when I get caught up in something and I'm out doing it, and and I do not have. The conscious, aware, the conscious level of my awareness of, of God in my life is not very high for that period of time. And sometimes I go through a number of days where that's true. So while I know that the steps are so, and while I know that I'm powerless, and while I know that I need to have a power greater than myself, I often don't act like it. So there's a difference between what you believe intellectually. There's a difference between able, being able to pass the test and actually practicing those principles on a daily basis in our lives. I think what the, the problem for many of us is we get sober for a while in AA is we start to rely on what we know. Because we have the answer. We have the information. The problem is for most of us is that we don't have the power to implement. It is, al- it is almost always true that each of us has our own answer. But it is also very true that most of us cannot snap our fingers at a moment's notice and put those answers into our lives on a permanent basis. And I think that is the frustration. And I think that the access to that, the access to that power is eventually over, you know, what we're searching for in life is to become realigned with our God, which is who we are at the core of our essence. And that it is that reunion which will bring the peace and joy that we can't find any place else in life. So as you've heard people say sometimes in AA, what we have in our stomachs is a God-sized hole. Most of us don't believe that, but, okay, I'll stop for a while. Well, Bob hit on some really good topics for me, because I had no idea what you guys wanted. Uh, but one of the things I can share with you, and this is always from my experience, because if I start a sentence with, I believe, I'm wasting your time. Because it doesn't matter what I believe. What is, is, and what is not, is not. It's just that simple. But when you talk about spiritual things, we never had, for me, I never had a language for spiritual things. I never, never dwelt on them before. This is a whole, this was a whole new venture for me, as the book talked about an individual adventure. 
and therefore I never had any context to talk about God because I'd never been, I'd been exposed to God in a very formal way through parochial school. When a, when a nun clicked a clicker, I knew how to kneel down. I knew how to shut up so I didn't get cuffed or hit with a ruler. I knew those things. But, you know, I always thought when I looked at God on the cross in the parochial school, not, that's my idea of God today, but that's what it was at that time, was the fact that I, you know, if this is the way his family treats him, I can see why he has few followers. You know, like uh, the, the bottom line is, is that it just is not a great thing to be showing a seven, eight, ten-year-old kid and saying this is the way it's going to end up. And so the reality was I didn't have a language or a context. And when I started to feel the things I felt inside, I knew there was something going on, but I didn't know what to relate it to. And in the, in the text of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a lot of things which we read, and when you read them the first time, it's from, a, from an informational standpoint. But it's not a case of taking it and ingraining it and moving on with it as part of your life. For example, on the third step, I'm always entertained by the fact that people will read and they'll, they'll accept the fact that lack of power is our dilemma. And then they get to the, have a lot of trouble taking the third step. And you look at them and say, you know, the guys who wrote this book not only had some spiritual insight, but they were street people. And what they do is they have you giving up something you don't have. Even if you give it up, you haven't lost anything. Because you never had it in the first place, you know. And and the bottom lack of power. Yeah. Are we okay? Is the sound coming? We're okay. And and if lack of power is our dilemma. You know, being a street kid, I know the law of of opposites, and that is lack of dilemma is my power. You know, all I had to do was stop getting intrigued and involved with things I couldn't do anything about. Did you ever notice you can't do anything about those things you can't do anything about? (laughs) You know, you guys might have caught on to that early. It took me a while in the sobriety to figure that out. I mean, I was working with a you know, with a modem that just didn't have that. So the bottom line for me was is that uh, I looked at it and, and then I, I saw that the complexity of people having with God because they were looking for a, an experience with an entity that I never had been involved with and I was expecting that experience to be able to be expressed by someone in a written form. And that's never been my experience with God reading about him. It's been God is an experience. You know, the thing that jumped out of the book at me that got me really going on this stuff where it says, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, and the hereafter. We were reborn. I didn't have that consciousness. I didn't know about presence. I just knew about the fact that there was somebody keeping score, at least that was my thought, about what I was doing and not doing. And I didn't know that, that this entity, this in, inner inner part of me, was going to be something of a, is a permanent nature, and everything else I dealt with in life was impermanent. You know, it's very hard to say to people today, because I've had this experience, that if you're involved with another human being, there's only three things that can happen from that involvement. That other human being is either going to die, they're going to leave, or they're going to change. And therefore, we have no 
no no context for dealing with permanence because we've dealt with nothing but impermanence all our lives. You know, it's not by accident in the literature it says, you know, make sure that make sure that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless uh, countless others. I needed the permanence of a relationship I didn't have. Everything around me was constantly in a state of change. And I was looking for permanence where people couldn't give me permanence. And so the reality was I realized there was something bigger than what was here, something I could see. And and going through the steps or taking the steps put me in contact with that because it, it opened some doors for me. And I got to see some things that I had never seen before. Uh, you know, it talks about in the literature where people say, you know, if we keep surrendering to this entity, to this power, then we'll become like the hole in the donut. You know, have you ever heard that one? Well, I'm here to tell you something that I found out for myself. And that is, it's good news. And the good news is, we are the hole in the donut. And the good news about that is that donuts come and go, but the hole is always there. <laughs> you know? So there's a continuity in life that you cannot get through words. You have to experience. And it's been my good fortune in sobriety, as Bob alluded to, that I've been put in scenarios where I've seen my own powerlessness and I've been put in touch with that entity. And as you know, you hear people say, I had a moment of clarity. I had an epiphany. In our literature, we say we had the ultimate glimpse. We just get a snapshot of it, and it's enough to keep us going. And that's why I think we do these kinds of things. We're all on the path, heading in a direction, and we're not quite sure of the road marks, but we know the experience has been that after we've passed a certain speed bump, we seem to be better for having passed that speed bump. We seem to have a strength that we didn't have prior to it, we seem to have an insight that we didn't have prior to it. And we're not all at the same speed bump, so it's very difficult to find someone you can sit and really talk to about this stuff because the, the reality of my existence is is we're all at different points at different times. It's not about holding hands and skipping down the path together. Uh, you know, that's just not the, has not been my experience. And so with something like this, I, I look at it that I'm here today because this is where I'm supposed to be. If I was supposed to be any place else, I'd be there. You know, that's how complicated my life is. I had a son who died in 1993. He contracted AIDS, came home to me, and he went from 195 pounds down to about 90 pounds. And by the time he died, he had been exposed to every facet of that disease. He had Carposi's sarcoma, a brain tumor, a cystic lung. He, there wasn't a thing he missed. And in the reality of watching my son die, I came to a depth of how powerless I was. This was something I didn't think God should give me. I thought I should have gotten a free pass on this, a get-out-of-jail card or something. Here I am in AA doing what I thought was pretty good stuff, and somehow I thought I was exempt from life. And the life here was that as he was dying, I got to see things in depth that I had never seen before. He reached a point where he wanted to maintain his dignity 
and he couldn't sit on a bedpan because he had gotten too skinny and it was too painful. So he wanted to use or have access to the bathroom. So I would put comforters and pillars on the floor. And I would watch my son drag and crawl across the floor to go to the bathroom. And it was a distance of maybe 12 feet from his bed in his room. But the thing was, it would take him half hour to an hour to get there sometimes because he took mini naps in between. He had no energy. And it came to me one day as I was sitting there watching him crawl on the floor that I crawled on the floor and I lost my dignity. My son was was crawling on the floor to maintain his dignity. So it's not the action that determines uh, why you're there. It's, it's why am I here? What am I doing? What is this about? And the reality for me was when he actually reached the point where he died uh, in the hospice that I had volunteered in for 10 years prior, uh, I got to go into his room and be there when he had a moment of consciousness. And we had stopped all the medication. And he said the most profound thing. He said, he looked up, he wanted to know where he was, and I had to tell him he was in the hospital. And that his mom, who was, I was now divorced from, was there with, uh, with my husband-in-law. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and the, and the bottom line was, is that, he was not going to be getting out of there. As soon as I said hospice, he knew what we were talking about. I had an opportunity to watch this 29-year-old son roll his head to one side of the pillow, and he was in the world. And when he rolled that head back, he was of this world. Because what he said to me, which will echo in my years for eternity, is, I'm good to go, Dad. This is okay. And when he said that, I heard something that I have never heard before, and that is the reality of reality. And from that point to this point in my life, which is now some nine years ago, I have dedicated myself to being good to go. And being good to go means taking every day, today is the 28th of September, and making this 28th of September the best 28th of September that I can have. It's not about the 27th of September, and it's not about the 29th of September. It's about this day. This is the day we're in. So I want to grab this day and milk it for everything that's in this day, whatever it is, good or bad, come on, come get me. I'm here. And then what I realize is that that becoming more and more vulnerable to life, I have become more and more invulnerable. Once you let down all these things, these psychological things that I hear people talk about, walls and barriers, I know what they mean, but they don't have any existence in existence. In life itself, it's let it come in, let it be, let it come at me. And I trust God enough to believe today that in letting it come at me, my experience will be it's not the dragon I think it is. It doesn't have the power that I mentally give it. In fact, it's not that powerful at all. And my experience has been in life to live life as it comes. I try to manage it. I try to control it. And my spiritual awakening has been to live totally in this moment with whatever this moment is, knowing that it may be the last moment I have. And if it's the last moment I have, 
then I want it to be the best moment of my life. And I had so lived in so much fear before that I never allowed these things to happen. Alcohol for me was a solution to life. It allowed me not to live. And now today I get a chance to live it on a daily basis. I mean, I'm on planes and doing things that, uh, that when I left my job and moved out to an Indian reservation six months ago, it was because it was time to do that. And I gave away everything I owned. And it was time to do that. And having nothing, I had everything. You get really mobile when you don't have anything. <laughs> and people in my family who are good at judging me call me to say things like, you've lost your mind. <laughs> and I thanked them for the compliment. And I told them, not yet. Not yet. But I'm working on it. I'll let Bob come in here. Yeah, much great stuff. I was at my spiritual men's group the other night. We were studying a series of spiritual practices that some Easterner talked about. One was is, is envision that you have given everything you have away, or someone has taken everything you have away, and you have you have forgiveness for that person and a sense of freedom, and you're okay. I thought that's nuts. I mean, <laughs> I mean there was this. I couldn't. There's something that's always attracted me to Ken. Both at the time in '91, I went broke, and I remember crying on your shirt sleeve about that. And uh, it was a profound experience for me because I, you know, kind of got my life together in AA. Thought God was blessing me because now I finally got it together, made a bunch of money, got everything okay, and then lost it all, which didn't feel okay. <laughs> and uh, there was something about Ken. There was a freedom that he had when he talked about giving every away, or maybe it was the freedom of his going through the experience of his son dying. He was in touch with something that I was not in touch with. He had a freedom that I clearly didn't have. I was in the pain of losing what I was losing, and it was clear to me that he had he was further down the road with respect to that that process. So he's saying today his practice is being in the now. I always felt, especially the last number of years, that one of the things about living one day at a time is one of the great understudied aspects of our program. Because when we're in the moment, there's not a problem. There's not a problem right this moment. To the extent that we can cooperate and be in the presence of life, there is no problem. Now the thing that stops most of us from doing that is our mind. We are so identified with our mind, and our mind is so active that it keeps most of us away from being able to be in the moment and being able to be in the day, as Ken talked about. We're in our story. We're in our history. We're running towards some sort of salvation, some sort of salvational event that's going to happen. Someone's going to squirt $10,000 under the doorknob, or she is going to show up, or her, he is going to show up in our lives, or your kid's going to, you know, some event is going to be okay. So there's always, you know, we're running away from what, is causing us a problem in the moment to the salvation that we have and the reason that we are so attached to our history is that's our identity. But most of us spend almost no time in the moment. When we are in the moment, we're okay. But the ego and mind is set up to be attached to the history, focused very, very heavily on the future, and only uses the moment as kind of a bridge between those two things, just as a means of getting there. And what we're robbed of is our lives. 
the essence of our, there is no peace, there is no joy. And I think, in my experience, you have a choice. You have a continuum that you live on. You either can have your ego and intellect in charge of your life. That's over here. That's like a street, and this is the left-hand curb. Or you can have a God-centered, some sort of God-consciousness available to you. And when you're centered and in that place, you're okay. Now, I think it's a continuum. And I think that many of us, I mean, there are days I wake up and I'm in it with absolutely no... I mean, there are days that I wake up and I'm crazy from the moment I open my eyes. There has been no event. I didn't request it. I can. I, there is nothing that I can identify it with, but I am just there. I don't. I don't know what, why, or what that is. There are other days I wake up and I am in tune and in balance from the moment I wake up and it is there. So I think the. I think we are, we literally live on that continuum. I think to the extent that we're centered, we don't have pain. I think that there is fear and pain. And I think over on the other side is some joy and a connection with God, a higher God consciousness. The program talked about a spiritual awakening. And I think that's what the process is over a period of time, is becoming more awake, becoming more present. But most of us don't know who the hell we are. We come in and our whole approach, our whole psyche, we think we're the skin bag. Okay, We're all in our little tanks with the split out there. We have our machine guns, you know, and, you know, we're taking people out every once in a while. <laughs> no one can see who we are, you know, so we're absolutely protected. We have this uniqueness and anonymity inside our tank. And everybody's got, to, I mean, it's just like dodging cards. I mean, we are just, I mean, that's, we really are these isolated individual entities, skin bags going through the journey, and that's who we think we are. Uh... There's no peace in that. We think we're separate. You know, we think we're in opposition. We want to be right and make other people's wrongs. We want to be okay. We want to prevail. I want to have, inf- I want to control you. I do not want to be controlled by you. I don't want to be told what to do. I want to maintain my individuality and I want to be right. Other than that, it's okay. <laughs> Which can cause you some difficulty in marriage. I don't know why that is that you would, that that attitude would cause you some difficulty. And, and in parenting. And in life. Other than that, it doesn't cause much trouble. <laughs> but if you don't know who you are and you don't know what life is about, uh, it isn't very surprising that you would make those mistakes. If you don't know who you are, if you're the man sitting on top of that box of gold and have never looked inside that box of gold, it would not be surprising that the resolution you're looking for is external. And it wouldn't be very surprising that you have had over a period of time of trying to resolve the issues, you have had temporary relief from the issues of your life. So when you've had financial issues, you have gotten some money, and for a moment, the reception of that money seemed to resolve your issue. Most of us have found out that it didn't resolve the issue. It was relief, not a cure. You know, And that's what most of us want in life. We don't want a cure. We want relief. Man described it once as if you're standing in a pool of liquid manure and it's right up to your nostrils. And a guy leans over and says, Can I help you out? He said, No, 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 I'm okay. Just get that guy over there to stop making waves. Uh, most of us do not want a cure. Okay. We want relief. We want the symptoms to go away. We do not want the operation. We do not want the procedure. We do not want the change that is significant enough to give a cure, because that involves change. And most of us are so strongly identified with what we, with the package that we now have intact, 
The change looks like death. It does not look like change. So there's a lot of fear because of how strongly identified we are with our story and our present. And I think that that is one of the things about a spiritual journey, and I think that that's what we're all on, is it takes a kind of fearlessness. It takes a kind of courage. I think the process for many people in life, one of the great questions is, when did you stop growing? Because I think the temptation of life is, is that you gather enough information, and once you think you've got enough information, you shut it down. No more information is getting in. You've got enough. You know who to hate. You know who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, what you need to know, what you don't need to know. That's it. I grew up in the neighborhood. I live in the neighborhood. I know all the answers. That's it. Well, life isn't like that. But many of us have shut it down. Many of us in Alcoholics Anonymous have shut it down. We have memorized the menu, but we don't eat the food. We're dying of lack of nutrition, and we have memorized the menu, and we are spouting the menu to each other. The words are not the food. They point to the food. They describe the food, but they are not the food. You have to put it in action and have the experience. That is the food. That is the nutrition. But many of us have settled with describing it and not eating it. Or we talk about the times when we did eat it. (laughs) But the nature seems to be, like the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. I mean, would it be that something I did 10 years ago could sustain me today? It can help sustain me, but it, in essence, will not sustain me. It's what I'm doing today that will sustain me today. It's the spiritual condition that I'm trying to maintain today that will give me the stability and presence to be able to be, to be able to be. And I, that is, I think, the, one of the most frustrating parts is that spirituality is not informational, it's experiential, which I think is one of the great things about our program, is we encourage the sharing in a way that is experiential. We want you to share your experience, strength, and hope, not your ideology, not your philosophy, because there's something special, there's, a, there's a, an integrity and a strength that comes through when you take your experience it's more powerful. I think those two men that made the 12-step call on me altered my life in the sharing of their life with me. I have never before talked to a person who had a drinking problem. I've talked to experts in alcoholism. I've talked to family counselors. I've talked to, you know, lots of experts, but I had never talked to a, a drunk. And two guys sitting in a booth in a matter of two hours altered my life. And I knew that something had changed. There was no question that in that conversation with those men knew what the hell they were talking about and that they had found an answer and it sounded like what they had gone through was similar to what I was going through. And I wanted to go find out what the hell they did. Uh, tailgating on what Bob said, when we come into the program, again, this is my experience, we all have a we all have a vision of who we are. And everything, and that's the context of our life. And everything we do has to relate to as we see ourselves. And therefore, people come in and they have a negative attitude about themselves. They've worked their whole life to develop that. They don't want to give it up. That's who they are. You know, I was at a meeting recently and I hadn't seen a woman in a while, and she came over, and uh, 
she said, do you remember me? And I said, oh, you're the woman who had the back surgery. And she said, no, I'm the next. You know, she wasn't even a person anymore. She was just this story about her neck. And, uh, you know, everything we do will end up putting in the context of as we see ourselves. And that's why it's very important to shatter that image of who we think we are. And when people talk to me about wanting to commit suicide, I get really excited. Because I can tell them about the fact that, you know, if you really want to commit suicide, then you and I can take the steps together. Because taking the steps will allow you to die to the person you think you are. And it's that person who can't survive in the world. It's that person who's so overwhelmed by life. It's that person who can't get on with it. And once you kill that person on purpose, you have some real positive results. Number one is they're out of the picture. And number two is you get to grow in ways you've never allowed yourself to grow before because you've been so stagnated by trying to keep that person alive that just wasn't working. You know, there's no doubt in my mind today that when we're sent out from the home office, we're okay. You know, and along the way, we have one purpose here on earth, and that is to remember who we are. And we forget. And forgetting who we are, we make up a person who doesn't work. Uh, I go to meetings and I hear people say, well, I remember this and I remember that. Every time I hear that word, I break it down to you're membering up with the world again. Once you start membering up with the world again, you become a member again, you get connected to everything. There isn't anything over there. It's everything is right here. You know, people say, when I get to there and then, there is no there and then. When you get to there and then, it's here and now. You know, it's always here and now. In fact, if you take the word now, N-O-W, and spell it backwards, a little dyslexic, it's W-O-N. You've won. When you've learned to live in the now, you've won. Instead of talking about actions, people talk about what they're thinking about. Thinking is what you do when you don't want to take action. You know? You go to your spam thinking about this, I'm thinking about that. Next time you're thirsty, think about a glass of water, you know? You know? And see if that thirst goes away. It's a program of action. In fact, if you look at the word thinking, the last four letters says it all. K-I-N-G. We've made thinking king. That's who we are. I have great thoughts. Well, how do they, how do they relate to your life? I don't know. They're just really good thoughts, you know. And I have good intentions, and I have all these other things. And the bottom line is, is we've made thinking king, and we've done away with the action part. And that's what this is about. This is a program of action, getting into action. Like Bob, I mean, I, I found out uh, after being retired for eight years, the company paying my retirement plan went bankrupt. So I had to go back to work as though I had never been out to work a day in my life when I was in my mid-fifties. And it was something I didn't plan for. But along the way, it opened the door to another lesson. And what I found out is, and I'll pass this on free, this won't cost you anything. And that is, you can only lose what you do not have. You cannot lose what you have. So if you have developed the internal stuff, you cannot have that taken away from you. You can only have taken away from you external things which by their nature are impermanent. 
And once you accept that, I mean, I go to meetings and I've said this myself when I first got sober, so every time I hear someone say it, I get excited. You notice in Alcoholics Anonymous, the only thing we do uh, completely is we lose everything. Did you ever hear anybody say, well, I lost a little? I lost some of what I... No, we're losers. You know, we lose everything. You know, I lost everything and I was left with what? Nothing. You hear that all the time. Well, let me tell you something. I said that until it got nauseous. And what I found out today is the, the everything I lost has turned out to be nothing. And the nothing I was left with has turned out to be everything. You know, I couldn't tell the difference between nothing and everything. I'm going to do something that I do with new guys that I work with and see if you guys catch on to this. Okay? This is heavy stuff. I move fast. When you're unscarred by education, you can move very quickly. (laughs) Because the normal rules don't pertain to you. Everybody in the room, now I'm assuming you're all over 21, those who are under 21 can participate too. I'm going to ask you, which is your strongest hand, your right hand or your left? So those of you who know at your age that your right hand is your strongest, just raise it up. Okay, so you look around so you can see all the right-handed people, okay? All right, those of you who know your left hand is the strongest hand, put it up. Okay, if you're going to open ketchup or something. Okay, now you ready for this? This is heavy stuff. Put your hands together in front of you like this. And push as hard as you can and tell me which hand wins. (laughs) I get the impression that neither hand wins. And the reason for that is the ability to overcome myself is not within me. I have a mind that the minute I begin to exert pressure in one direction, what does it do? It exerts pressure in the other direction. I am getting all the power to change from within. I just don't have that power. So what we teach you in AA, hopefully, is to relax your hands and ask for that power greater than yourself to come into your life. That's the power we need.